I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Welcome to the first of three programmes on religion and the new science. The origins of contemporary science lie in those years of the 16th and 17th centuries which we now call the scientific revolution. Science then was called natural philosophy and it was practiced by men who for the most part were devout if unorthodox Christians. The astronomer Johannes Kepler described himself as the priest of God in the temple of nature and Isaac Newton believed himself to be in the line of the mystic philosophers of antiquity. But the new natural philosophy, despite the religious faith of its founders, pictured the universe as a great machine to which God was wholly external. It was therefore not surprising that little more than a century after the publication of Newton's Principia, the man sometimes called the French Newton, the Marquis de Laplace, could make his famous remark to Napoleon that God was a hypothesis of which he had no need. Many individual scientists continued to practice their science in the spirit of their religious faith, but science, philosophy and religion as systems of knowledge increasingly went their separate ways. Then came the scientific revolutions of the 20th century. The hard atoms of which Newton had believed his world to be composed disintegrated into a bewildering variety of subatomic particles, and physicists became aware that they could not observe this strange new subatomic realm without at the same time changing it. Objectivity became problematic as consciousness began to seep in at the very foundations of physics. Science, as Owen Barfield once wrote, was pitchforked back into philosophy. It's the relations of science, philosophy and religion which form the subject of this series. Next week, the question is whether we are witnessing the emergence of a new natural philosophy in the works of scientists like Nobel laureate Ilya Prigogine and theoretical physicist David Bohm. The final program, two weeks from tonight, will focus on the philosophical and theological implications of this changed science. Tonight's program will eventually take you back to the early years of the 17th century when René Descartes first formulated what was then called the mechanical philosophy. But it begins with the work of one of the contemporary scientists who are transforming our conception of nature. Religion and the New Science is written and presented by David Cayley. In 1979, British scientist James Lovelock published a book called Gaia, a new look at life on Earth. Taking his title from the name of the Greek goddess who once personified the Earth, Lovelock argued that our planet constitutes a single, self-regulating system which is maintained by and for life. That the Earth, in other words, is a single living being. He had arrived at his theory as a result of work he had done during the 1960s for NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in the United States. Asked to help devise experiments which could potentially detect life on Mars, he and colleague Diane Hitchcock approached the problem by trying to understand how life on our planet would communicate its presence to observers elsewhere. And so he imagined a telescope trained on the Earth. When we looked back, we found an atmosphere that was wildly anomalous. And it's a strange, wonderful and beautiful anomaly that sort of shouted a song of life right across the solar system right out into the galaxy. If somebody says, well, what do you mean by this? What anomalies? 
Well, just consider two of the gases, oxygen and methane. Oxygen's present at 21%, methane's present at one and a half parts per million, a mere trace, you may think. But their coexistence at a steady state in an atmosphere represents an anomaly measured in hundreds of orders of magnitude as far as its disequilibrium goes. You see, for methane and oxygen to coexist in an atmosphere on a planet at that steady state means that something must be making the methane and something must be making the oxygen because they react together and they use each other up. And knowing the volume of the Earth's atmosphere and the rate of reaction which you can calculate from the intensity of sunlight in the Earth's atmosphere, because it's that which causes them to react, you can calculate that the something must be introducing no less than a thousand million tons of methane every year into the atmosphere, and something must also be introducing something like 4,000 million tons of oxygen every year into the atmosphere to account for the losses from the reaction of these two substances. And there just aren't any non-living processes that can do that in an atmosphere uh, such as the Earth. So the answer must be that there's life. You see, to keep all those unstable gases at a perfect steady state requires a lot of organization. But much more remarkable than this, how on earth could an atmosphere that was a bit like the gases that go into the intake manifold of an internal combustion engine be just right for life? I mean, this was even more extraordinary. And, of course, that's what made me think, well, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way round. Uh, the atmosphere isn't an environment for life. It's something that life has made as an environment for itself. It's something it has chosen and deliberately keeps going because it likes it that way. And that, of course, was the Gaia hypothesis, and that's how it started. According to the Gaia hypothesis, the plants and animals of Earth cooperate in the creation of a suitable environment for themselves. But it is only when we ask how they do this that the revolutionary implications of Lovelock's theory become clear. How, for example, do the microorganisms which produce the methane or the plants which transpire the oxygen, know how much to produce? The answer can only be that the process is somehow coordinated, that the oxygen producers and the methane producers are linked by some kind of primary process which displays both foresight and purpose. Nature as a whole, therefore, appears as a single living organism, able to coordinate the activities of its constituent processes, and in so doing, it displays what we can only call intelligence. I intend to explore scientific ideas like those of Jim Lovelock in more depth in next week's program. I mention him at the outset because his work illustrates the emergence within science of a new image of nature, or better, the re-emergence of an old image, of a world alive with meaning and purpose. Indeed, for Lovelock to have named his theory after an ancient goddess of nature seems to me something more than just a literary flourish. For what else were gods, if not the ways in which human beings spoke of the characteristics of the larger systems within which they found themselves embedded, systems which they experienced as alive and responsive, if not always benign? Religion was the experience of meaning, direction, and purpose in a cosmos which had not yet been broken into two separate orders, the conscious order of mind and the unconscious order of nature. This division in reality 
was to take place in the natural philosophy of the 17th century, which forms the main focus of tonight's program. Before that time, theology was wedded to the science of Aristotle, and it is historian Morris Berman's view that Aristotle's science still retained elements of the primitive or magical worldview in which everything was alive. A lot of Aristotelian concepts really are derivative from the magical worldview. For example, the notion, central Aristotelian notion, that everything has its natural place and natural motion. If an object is dropped, the reason that it falls to the ground is that it's trying to reach the center of the earth, which is its home. Now, for that to be true, the object has to have a mind. That is to say, the central principle of Aristotelian philosophy was the telos, or the goal. Hence, it's a teleological philosophy. Things are going to the place that they belong. Well, for the object to know that it belongs home and that its purpose is to go home, in some sense it has to be sentient. It has to understand. In that sense, it is continuous with magic. It's just that there's a question of whether this is a lived experience, as I believe, for example, alchemists and astrologers were in, or whether it's a dogmatic type of catechism, which describes most of the clergy, for example, in uh, the Middle Ages, and for whom all of this stuff is a formula. Aristotle's understanding of the cosmos was modeled on the processes of life. If cosmology essentially reduces to the question, what is the world really like? Then for the medieval world, it was like a living being. Angels guided the movements of the celestial spheres, and living forms, or souls, infused the things of the earth with meaning and purpose. The soul, then, referred not to some nebulous spiritual essence, but to the actual form of the body. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake is a British plant physiologist and the author of A New Science of Life. He believes that the divorce between science and religion was at least partly a consequence of the giving up of this idea of the soul. The incompatibility between science and religion arose, I think, in the 17th century by this extreme dualistic split between the realms of spirit and the realms of matter, um, replacing the threefold division that existed before in terms of body, soul, and spirit. What was eliminated in the 17th century was the level of soul. Souls were thought of as invisible organizing principles. They were the form of the body, as Plato said, and Aristotle thought that all species, animals and plants, had the souls which gave them their form and their instincts and their behavior, and in human beings there was the rational soul as well, which was that concerned with reason and intellect. The process by which Aristotelian natural philosophy was replaced by mechanistic science took place gradually. Its landmarks were the revolution in celestial mechanics brought about by Copernicus, Kepler, and Newton, the new experimental physics of Galileo, and the philosophy of René Descartes. Part of the impetus for this new science grew directly out of the inadequacies of the Aristotelian system which, by the time of the Renaissance, had hardened into an inflexible orthodoxy. But the new science was also a response to the social chaos which followed on the disintegration of the medieval world system. For more than a century after Martin Luther challenged the church at Wittenberg in 1517, 
Europe was racked by religious wars. And according to historian of science Stephen Toulmin, this endless killing over matters of religious belief eventually created a powerful incentive for philosophers to try and find some alternative basis for social consensus. As I understand the quality of life in much, certainly of Northern and Western Europe in the first half of the 17th century, living there at that time was a bit like living in Lebanon today. Ideas had consequences. If you were perceived as having the wrong ideas, there was always somebody at hand who was ready to burn your house down and cut your throat because you didn't have the ideas that he agreed with. Dissension, intellectual dissension at that stage was a house-burning matter, was a throat-cutting matter. The religious wars got to the point, both in France and in Germany even more with the Thirty Years' War, they got to the point at which it was an extremely disagreeable place to be. And therefore the question was, how can we arbitrate between these different ways in which people think and talk about the world? Things came to the point at which that became not just an intellectually pressing, but a socially indispensable question. Science was certainly a response to the divided and uncertain situation of a world, in effect, between cosmologies. But this is not a complete explanation by any means. The new natural philosophy of the 17th century also followed on the heels of the remarkable development of technology which had been occurring in Europe from the late Middle Ages onward. Today we are apt to think of technology as somehow being a product of science. But historian Morris Berman argues that at the beginnings of science, the equation ran the other way. It was technology that largely raised the question of what was going on in nature itself. The rise of things like mining technology and textile technology and steam technology and all these types of things plants the suggestion that nature is inherently mechanical. That basically the reason that all this machinery is now proliferating in the environment is because nature is mechanical and if it's harnessed in that way you're addressing it correctly. Francis Bacon says nature in order to be commanded must be obeyed. Well, obeyed means understanding that it's mechanical, understanding how that mechanics unrolls and how it works, and then manipulating according to those rules and limits. So this is one way in which I would think there's a heavy influence from technology to science. The originality of men like Francis Bacon or René Descartes was not that they made up a new philosophy of nature out of their heads but that they realized the philosophical implications of what was already displayed before them in the new technology. The distinction can be made clearer by an example which Morris Berman gives in his book The Reenchantment of the World. When Galileo's views got him in trouble with the church, he urged the members of the College of Cardinals to actually look through his new telescope and observe the moons of Jupiter for themselves. They refused and usually their refusal is attributed to simple stubbornness and opinionation. But in the context of the time, says Berman, the use of a device crafted by artisans to settle a scientific, let alone a theological controversy, represented an incomprehensible scrambling of categories. For the cardinals, reason alone could settle such a question. The genius of Galileo, or Bacon, or Descartes, then, was in seeing technology as a way of knowing the world a way with radical philosophical implications. 
Professor Albert Shalom of McMaster University has argued along similar lines by suggesting that Descartes introduced the radical division between mind and matter, which has literally dominated philosophy ever since, because the progress of the science of mechanics required such a distinction. The old Aristotelian idea that forms intelligible to human reason were present within matter had simply become a stumbling block to the technical and conceptual manipulation of nature. The importance of Descartes, as far as I see, is that he's the first to have realized the philosophical implications of the new mechanism. That, in fact, the theory of matter that is required by the new mechanism is a theory which demands no substantial forms, which is pure matter, which has local motion, doesn't have all sorts of mysterious motions having to do with qualities, having to do with inner changes, which have to do with the changing forms within the uh, matter, and so on and so forth. Matter had to be something pure, something simple, something absolutely measurable. It was extension, and that was essentially its property. He says in Le Monde that... Uh, whole essence of matter is extension, that's to say spatiality, and its operation is essentially motion. That's all. Well, the effect of this, of course, if you consider the background to it, that is to say that before we had a matter which was composed of matter and form, which therefore allowed us to understand things by means of a process of abstraction of forms, this vanishes at one fell swoop, so to speak. It just goes. And what's left is a mind which seems to have no direct contact with material reality. It cannot, because there are no forms there. It is faced with a pure, extended material reality, and it itself, therefore, becomes defined as some kind of pure intellectual activity facing a pure extended matter. That's really the very uh, <laughs> summary form, you know, the constitution of the body-mind problem in its modern form. Professor Shalom's argument throws an interesting light on Descartes' famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. It suggests that the philosopher's decision to derive his existence from his thinking actually came from the new conception of matter, which left mind isolated from nature. And this new conception of matter was dictated, above all, by the requirements of the new science. The real starting point is the changed conception of matter. And it's not an accident that, that, that Descartes was first and foremost a uh, physicist and uh, a chemist and a uh, physiologist and a biologist and so on. These were his real interests. Now, the point about that is that if you start off with that kind of work, and his original work is what we would call today mathematical physics, if you start off with that, and you say that my requirements are that of a material reality which is pure extension, and this pure extension is of such a nature that there is no room for mind being present in it, then I have the problem of where to situate mind, how to conceive of it, and how to understand its relationship to this matter which is now conceived as dense substance out there which has nothing mental about it. And that's the reason for the doubt. The doubt is real, because if my mind is of such a nature that it has nothing to do, ontologically, as, as a reality, nothing to do with physical reality, 
then I immediately have the problem of how is it involved with physical reality in terms of my actual existence as a psychophysical subject and in terms of my knowledge of the world around me. And that is what accounts for the successive stages in uh, Descartes' uh, philosophical thinking. When Descartes divided the world into the out there of pure matter and the in here of pure mind, he was forced to ask himself whether there was any guarantee that his ideas about the external world were, as he says, clear and distinct. His answer was that God, as a perfect being, would not deceive him. And thus the idea of God was built into the very foundation of his system of philosophy. In fact, the new natural philosophy in general owed a good deal to the Judeo-Christian conception of God and his relationship to the world. Philip Hefner is a professor at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. The notion of the creator is really one that has to be considered because basic to this Judeo-Christian tradition, and here Jews and Christians hold almost identical beliefs, that the creation is, first of all, out of nothing. That means it's solely the uh, instrumentality of God. And furthermore, it uh, is the result of a free decision of the Creator. It didn't just ooze into existence in the way that some other myths talked about it. As a consequence, when you're studying nature, you're studying something that is the product of somebody else's intention, namely God's, which gives a lot of assurance that it's consistent, that it's harmonious, that there is a, a meaning or a plan somewhere to be unlocked if you can just approach it vigorously enough and with enough intelligence. And of course, when you stop to think about it, if you took that consistency out of nature, if you took away the idea that there is a meaning embedded in nature, the scientist probably wouldn't be in business. This belief in the goodness of creation underlies one of the great leaps taken by the new natural philosophy. For Greek science, only the heavens displayed the perfection and regularity of geometrical form. The earth was corrupt and imperfect and therefore not amenable to mathematical description. And this view was also carried over into medieval cosmology. But the new natural science, as Elia Prigogine has observed, brought heaven to earth by its conviction that all nature must speak the language of mathematics. And this conviction would have been unthinkable without the idea that creation obeys the rational laws established by the Creator. Historian of science Trevor Levere of the University of Toronto cites as a case in point the views of the 17th century natural philosopher Robert Boyle, who is often described as the father of modern chemistry. One of Boyle's most heartfelt texts, I think, was his Christian Virtuoso, in which he explained that because God created the world and gave us our reason, the most virtuous religious activity that one could perform, practically, was to go into the laboratory and learn about the world. 
Um, when one got to heaven, one would find improved laboratory facilities, because since this is a virtuous activity, it must exist in heaven. One would have perfect sight and perfect instruments. One would not have any problems of translation with foreign texts. Science would really get to be an immediate activity, but, but seeing the way God's world worked was, for Boyle, one of the fundamental Christian activities. The new science also had a more active, less contemplative side, which is exemplified in the writings of both Bacon and Descartes. Descartes, for example, says that by exchanging a speculative for a practical philosophy, we may make ourselves the masters and possessors of nature. Bacon, in The New Science, writes of a chaste and lawful marriage between mind and nature, which will lead nature to you with all of her children and bind her to your service and make her your slave. These views, and the ways in which they were expressed, were certainly something new. And yet, according to Trevor Levere, they also had a basis in Christian tradition. I think the notion that science can be virtuous as an activity within a religious order is very clearly part of the Christian tradition. And, and certainly if you, if you look at, well, the Pilgrim Fathers and, and the rise of the United States, that there's no question that applying knowledge successfully is seen as virtuous, and one of the measures is material success, so that applying technology, applying science, and profiting from that application is in some ways a sign of grace. There's a marvelously entertaining essay by Lynn White, The Virtuousness of Technology, in which he explores the way in which within, I forget which order it is, of friars, Technology became virtuous and important and identified with the cardinal virtues and even confused with the Virgin Mary for its own sake. Big technology, modern technology, allied to science. Clocks, the latest in sophisticated technology was in clockwork, but mills and all kinds of, of power engines. That These were beautiful and virtuous and important and used iconographically as symbols of grace in the illuminations of the manuscripts from the late 12th or early 13th century through into the late 16th century. So that the, the notion that science and religion were at odds with one another in the established church, and then when the established church crumbled and society crumbled, science just rose, one decent phoenix coming up from one great mass, uh, I find almost incredible. science not only bore the marks of religious tradition, it also showed similarities to the several varieties of Protestantism which emerged out of the Reformation. Shortly after Britain's first scientific society, the Royal Society, was founded in 1642, one of its first members, Thomas Spratt, himself an Anglican, noted the similarity between the new society and the Christian Church. Both, Spratt observed, may lay equal claim to the word Reformation the one having compassed it in religion, the other purposing it in philosophy. Nevertheless, the new science did create certain religious controversies. Understanding the world in terms of mechanical principles inevitably raised the question of God's role in the system. Typical was the debate between Leibniz and one of Newton's supporters, Samuel Clark. The Leibniz-Clark correspondence is a correspondence between Leibniz 
and one of Newton's supporters. And Newton is, although not advertised, more or less holding the pen for Clark to make sure he gets things right. The, the correspondence begins with Leibniz complaining to a member of the royal family that natural religion seems to decay very much these days in England, and the reason for it is Isaac Newton's philosophy. Uh, and then they, they indulge in a series of letters interrupted by Leibniz's death. They weren't getting anywhere, but they would have gone on corresponding indefinitely, I think. A, a series of letters that examines the theological implications of their respective systems. Uh, for Leibniz, what is beautiful about the world, what makes it imaginatively satisfying, what makes it possible for him to combine religious faith and scientific belief, is precisely that it works so beautifully and that God has got it right. And he complains that Newton's world has some uncertainties built into it uh, that suggest that God is, is a bungler. Newton looks at Leibniz's world and, and says, look, God winds the thing up, sets it moving and goes away and has a holiday. That's no God at all. God is God if he is immediately and constantly controlling everything everywhere uh, and you're taking him out of the world and letting it go on its own. Both of them see the other's approach as soulless, destructive of religion. Both of them see their own world with its scientific and philosophical foundation as theologically satisfying, convincing, and tolerable in, in an emotional as well as a logical sense. Imaginative preferences, emotional preferences, can still be combined with almost any logical viewpoint. Trevor Levere concludes from the debate between Leibniz and Clark that a theological justification can be constructed for almost any scientific system. But this implies that religious knowledge is something quite different from scientific knowledge, an idea which would have seemed strange to Plato, and stranger still to the philosophical traditions of the East, for which no such distinction exists even today. The reason why such a clear distinction came to be made in Europe has to do with the nature of the religions which originated in the Middle East, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All are religions of the word, in which truth is something given through revelation, a fact which has profound relevance for the theory of knowledge which develops in the societies which adopt these religions. Ravi Ravindra is a professor of physics and religion at Dalhousie University. Truth is revealed by God, and there is no question of knowing what the truth is. That is already shown, it's already revealed, it's given. The question theologically for them really more is whether one can bend one's will enough to follow the commandments. Really the central theological question in these religions is really not a question of knowledge. It's really a question of will. By contrast, if you look at, for example, the Hindu-Buddhist, Taoist point of view, there the question really not of, is not of will. It is of knowledge, but it's, of course, one should realize it's a very special kind of knowledge one is talking about. Not the kind of knowledge which is sort of detached from oneself, which is out there, and in that sense, objective. But it's a knowledge which is gained, in fact, really by participation and therefore very much depends on the level of being of the person who has the knowledge. For example, if the Buddha sees something, and I am seeing the same thing, if you like, 
that what he sees about this person or about an animal or about a tree or a star is different from what I see because of his level of being. There are two different and distinct points in what Dr. Ravindra says here. The first concerns a division between knowing and being which is entailed in the very idea of objective knowledge. In classical science, one could know without necessarily being changed by that knowledge, and what one knew would not in any way be affected by one's state of being. Dr. Ravindra cites the case of Isaac Newton, universally acknowledged as one of the greatest of scientists, but personally rather mean and vindictive. The second point concerns the implications for our theory of knowledge of the fact that truth is, so to speak, given in advance by revelation. This, in effect, constitutes a limitation on science, since at least part of what science sets out to discover about the nature of things is by definition already known. It therefore became necessary during the 17th century for science and religion to create a kind of truce. This involved dividing knowledge into two fundamentally different kinds. The result was the theory of the two books, the Book of Revelation and the Book of Nature, both written by God, but each needing to be approached separately and by quite different methods. The theory is found in epigrammatic form in the writings of Galileo. He was very fond of quoting something which I find very amusing, that the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, but not how the heavens go. This is actually not his original, but he was quoting somebody else. But in any case, it actually makes a fundamental point, nevertheless, that he, among other scientists, was anxious to carve out an area of investigation by the methods of natural sciences, which will be independent of any theological or religious or clerical or ecclesiastical control. That is really an important point in the rise of the modern sciences from the 16th, 17th century. But what actually happened along with it is that in order to win this separate area of inquiry by, strictly speaking, natural scientific means, two major restrictions were imposed on this. One is really a restriction which I think would have been acceptable to everybody in the Western world. But certainly looking at it from the Indian point of view, it is a restriction, which is that truth is ultimately something that is a matter of revelation from God, which is who is external, etc. Now, the scientists, by and large, don't feel easy with this at all, but they were willing enough to allow that area of ultimate truth or ultimate concerns to be the area of the theologians. So they said they will concern themselves only with the physical universe. Now the second part, which is really specifically scientific part, is a restriction on knowledge such that, that this knowledge is no longer transformative knowledge. That what one knows does not change me, but remains separated from me.
middle part of the 17th century was a period not of intellectual construction, but of intellectual reconstruction. What people had to do was to develop a way of seeing the world and of seeing the human situation in that world, which put order back into the world, the order which had gradually fallen apart in the last years of the 16th century and the early years of the 17th century. What put the order back, in part, was the work of Isaac Newton. Newton's physics provided a complete and satisfying system whose basic principles eventually became virtually synonymous with science itself. And according to Stephen Toulmin, Newton's system had a cosmological dimension as well. The Newtonian way of looking at the world became a way of looking at the relationship of human beings and society to that world, became a way of looking at the relationship of God to the world. That is to say, the physics became the crystallizing point around which the whole of the rest of the bourgeois world order took shape, so that in due course, the old Aristotelian cosmology, the old picture of the world as a system of organisms of different degrees of complexity, became replaced by this alternative Newtonian cosmology, which had the same power to give structure to people's thought in a way that made for them some kind of sense of how the different aspects of the world mesh together, but one which was based on mechanical rather than any kind of organic principles. The Newtonian cosmology did not replace the Aristotelian without a struggle. And in fact, by the time Newtonianism ultimately triumphed, its main competitor was not Aristotle at all, but what was called the Hermetic philosophy, whose best-known expression was alchemy. The hermetic view of matter was of something capable of internal transformations, and therefore living. The mechanical philosophy had common roots with hermeticism and shared with it the great ambition to transform nature. But by the 17th century, the new science was increasingly at war with the magical and pantheistic elements in hermeticism. Newton, interestingly enough, had a foot in both camps. Indeed, he wrote more words in alchemy than he did in mathematical physics, actively performed alchemical experiments, and was convinced that his famous inverse square law of gravitation had been known to the seers of antiquity. But he concealed this side of his work from the public, and his published works were all within the Cartesian terms of matter acted upon by external mechanical forces. Newton's acts of self-censorship revealed just how political an issue cosmology was in the 17th century. For example, during the English Civil War of the 1640s, the religious sects which opposed the established order were very much rooted in the occult philosophy which saw matter as penetrated by dialectical forces. The sectarians of the Cromwellian Commonwealth, the, the Shakers, the Ranters, the Levellers, even the Quakers in their early years, that these sectarians were given to unorthodox systems of natural philosophy. For instance, one of the fundamental axioms of 17th century natural philosophy was the idea that basically everything that is truly made of matter is essentially inert. What happens, happens because forces act on it. That is to say, the image is that of material particles which can only move where they're pushed. And therefore, 
the cosmological question becomes, where did the push comes from? Descartes is clear enough that God conferred at the creation a given quantity of motion on the universe, and that ever since the creation, everything that has happened in the physical world has only happened because this motion has been redistributed among the material particles, which, being basically inert, are incapable of being spontaneous sources of action on their own account. Now, what's interesting is that when the sectarians, when these unruly outsiders, these people who had no real commitment to law and order, I mean, they were all very much 60s people, when they start thinking about nature, they all come up with ideas like, well, why shouldn't we think of every particle in the universe as being a center of agency? Why shouldn't we think not that material particles only go where they're pushed? Why shouldn't we think that every particle in the universe does its own thing? This was politically unacceptable. This was politically unacceptable. Law and order required that people should know their places and do what they were expected to do and go where they were metaphorically pushed. The reason why the Newtonian system had such charm for people in the 1660s and, uh, and, and through into the 18th century was, I think, that it gave an account of nature on which one could model a justification for a fixed social order. Newtonian science could explain the motions of the planets and predict the past and future states of simple mechanical systems, but it could not account for spontaneity within nature or the human experience of irreversible change. Thus, when it was generalized into a system of universal laws, says Nobel laureate Ilya Prigogine, the result was a split between science and the humanities that has lasted to this day. The question was, if Newtonian science could be applied to the entirety of our thinking. And that was, of course, ambition of many people, to try to found a economics based on Newtonian science, to have a sociology which would imitate Newtonian science. And there, of course, I, I feel some reservation because Newtonian science was presenting the world as a kind of giant clockwork, uh, the laws were time-reversible. There was no difference between past and uh, future. Uh, the laws were deterministic. Uh, once you know the present state, you could predict as well the uh, past, if I can say so, and as well as the future. All this is, in a sense, in a direct conflict with our vision of human activities. Therefore, in a sense, there was this harsh uh, choice to make between the Newtonian science and uh, what we felt was, uh, to some extent, human reality. This harsh choice between science and humanity was just one of a series of binds which resulted from the Cartesian cut between mind and nature. Science, as Prigogine has written, became the prophetic announcement of a world seen from a divine point of view, the scientist stood outside nature, looking in, his knowledge, in effect, guaranteed by God. But eventually, he had to ask himself how he actually knew what he knew. The question occurred first to the great 18th-century German philosopher, Immanuel Kant. 
One has to remember that Kant's first major book was a book of physical cosmology. He thought that by simply taking Newton's laws of motion and gravitation and imagining that the universe had started as uh, a randomly distributed um, conglomeration of material particles, he could demonstrate that it had to end up the way it is, with suns and planets and nebulae and expl exploding stars and all the rest. And, and in his Universal Natural History and Theory of the Heavens, he gives entirely out of his head on the basis of Newtonian physics, an account of how the universe had to develop according to good Newtonian principles, which is amazingly perceptive in the hypotheses that he comes up with, some of which have really only had flesh put on them in the 20th century. However, just after he'd done all this, he read David Hume's works and started being very worried about the question, how on earth given an a priori system of mathematics like Newton's, he could ever have done this. I mean, he was, he was like somebody who's been living as a conjurer all his life and suddenly discovers that he's, that he's a conjurer when he thought he was living real life. And then, you know, he's forced to turn back on himself and look at himself and say, how the devil is it that I managed to bring these tricks off? Where do these rabbits come from that I find in my hat? And the whole of the second half of Kant's career, when he changed direction and started working as what he called a critical philosopher, writing these books which are all called Critique of This and Critique of That, what he's doing is holding the mirror up to himself and saying, here am I, all this time, been thinking about the world in terms of physics. What the devil have I been doing? And how on earth has it been capable of getting results? Because what Hume had convinced him of was that, on the face of it, it was entirely impossible to get results that way. Kant solved his problem in a way that seems, in retrospect, rather lame. He concluded that the physics was simply built into the structure of the mind, or more properly, the structure of reason itself. But this, according to Ilya Prigogine, trivialized science by making it essentially a system of self-reference, mind discovering in nature what it, in effect, had put there. Science was reduced essentially to spelling out universal rules. And this idea that there are some given universal rules which would explain everything which we see around, you see, was ex expressed again and again, not only by Kant, but I was amused to find it also in, in sociologists like, like Durkheim in France or Levi Brühl, you see. And they would write that uh, men can no more be astonished by anything because he knows that there are a few uh, universal laws, and if he sees something which looks rather unusual, he knows that after uh, some thinking, he will reduce use it to one of the great universal laws which he knew anyway. So essentially, science was trivialized. The same, in a sense, could be said for religion. Just as science abandoned the search for meaning and value in nature, so religion abandoned the question of what the physical world means. The doctrine of creation did not entirely leave Christianity, but religion in general became a rather parochial and sectarian story of sin and salvation. The cosmic Christ through whom the world was made became less important than Christ the personal Redeemer. Once again, we can see in the works of Immanuel Kant how the division was made. Kant separated the world into the phenomenal realm, which was the province of science, and the noumenal realm, which was beyond the reach of reason, 
but happily present in us as a kind of moral intuition. Dr. Philip Hefner of the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Being the good Lutheran pietist and Prussian that he was, Kant did say that we could make contact with the noumenal realm in our uh, moral action. So this means, uh, on the one hand, that uh, religion has a safe place where science can't get it, namely this uh, moral intuition and action. And on the other hand, uh, the really life and death issues that confront human beings uh, can never be touched by science. Philip Hafner's point about the break between the spiritual and the material, giving religion an area where science couldn't get it, points to the increasingly defensive stance taken by religion after the Enlightenment. For as the explanatory power of science steadily expanded, the power of religion shrunk proportionately. The compact between theology and science struck during the 17th century was proving to be a bad bargain for religion. Yet science too was a loser, despite the miraculous expansion of its secular powers. For without access to those qualities of being which had been consigned to the sphere of religion, says philosopher Jacob Needleman, scientists tended to suppress their deeper feelings in the name of suppressing subjective emotions. It was a noble ideal, and one can still honor it, that I wish to know without being swayed by the emotions, by my subjective feelings, my, my uh, predilections, by uh, passively and blindly accepted beliefs. I want certainty, not some fairy tale, even if it's a beautiful one. And that is very honorable. The only problem, again, painting with a very big brush, is that in trying to resist the undue influence of emotions, one cut oneself eventually off from something which one would call the real feelings. There is a feeling, kind of feeling knowing. It's not emotional. It's not feely-feely kind of thing, but a sensitivity toward value in the universe, which is as necessary, more necessary than perhaps anything else in our minds for relating to the world. So if one could separate oneself from these egoistic, subjective, emotional preferences while still retaining the deeper layers of intuitive feeling, that would have been wonderful. But I think that wasn't done. I think Descartes' idea was accepted as time went on as simply distancing oneself from all forms of feeling and not just the erroneous subjective emotions. The loss of these deeper feelings was a consequence of the idea that human beings could understand the universe without understanding themselves. And the converse was held to be equally true, that human beings could understand themselves without understanding the nature of the physical world. Protestantism particularly stressed the relation of man to God as something separate from the relation of man to nature. Jacob Needleman. By the time Protestantism gets its head, we have a sense that, well, our interest is not so much in nature anymore, but in man's relationship to God. Let nature alone. Let it be something other people think about. Nature is not the important thing. It's how we are toward God. And uh, as, science to, as science became more persuasive in telling us what nature is like, and the church and Christianity retreated from its um, obligation to tell us about nature, it told us not only about nature, but 
about the nature in ourselves. And that means what, how it looked at nature became, began to dominate how it looked at the human self, which eventually began to dominate how we looked at ourselves. And then we began to look at ourselves as basically blind mechanical forces where consciousness and um, love and faith and all those things became inexplicable except in insofar as they were reduced to non-conscious factors. As religion gradually abandoned cosmology, science tended to become a sort of secular substitute. But science was ever-changing, and its evolution eventually brought it face to face with mysteries that the old mechanism simply couldn't explain. The resulting contemporary science will form the focus of next week's program as we examine the work of physicist David Bohm, physical chemist Ilya Prigogine, and biologists Rupert Sheldrake and Jim Lovelock and ask whether this work is leading us to a new natural philosophy. You've been listening to Religion and the New Science, part one in a three-part series by David Cayley. Technical operations were by Tom Shipton and Lorne Tulk. Production by Jill Eisen, with the assistance of Alison Moss. Transcripts of this series are available for $5, to order a copy, write Religion and the New Science, care of CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. Enclose a check or money order for $5 payable to CBC Transcripts. Please don't send cash through the mail, and please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a free reading list to supplement this series. If you'd like one, just write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. And listen again tomorrow night when we begin Radical Preachers, Radical Politics, a new series about the social gospel in Canada and its influence on Canadian politics. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.